0: balance is not the most important thing in any given game. The most important thing is if you enjoy the game. Balance testing is probably the last 10 to 20% of the testing you do. And balance testing is, so that balance testing is the thing that people think of when they think of the word playtesting, testing. Right. But balance testing is a 20, like a minuscule part at the end of all of your testing.
1: Hi, friends, Craig here. Listeners hear me preach the quality of the design work that comes out of Steamforged games all the time. Several episodes ago, we had Jamie Perkins on the show, and today we have a former developer from that camp that shares uh, some insights. Bryce Johnston covers so much in this interview, from design, development, uh, trends in gaming, to really what makes a game good. He does a good job covering uh, what he thinks the impacts of COVID are going to be in the short term and the long term for tabletop gaming. We have an interesting conversation about playtesting. He draws a distinction between being a game designer versus a game developer. I know a lot of you think they're one and the same. Stick around to the end. His discussion about representation in gaming, I think, is fascinating. Enjoy.
0: Playing games tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle
1: reports and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the Third Floor. Today we're talking to Bryce Johnston, the designer best known for his work on Dark Souls, the card game, and of course, Guild Ball. Now listeners already know I'm a huge fan of Guild Ball. Guild Ball is what saved me from uh, Games Workshop, and uh, since then I've never looked back. So Bryce, welcome to the third floor. Hello, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, It's good to have you, man. Yeah. Um, So the question we give all new guests, uh, and uh, your uh, good friend Jamie had to answer this as well, is uh, there was a day, and it wasn't yesterday, but there was a day where Bryce had never seen a tabletop game before, had never seen a mini, uh, never rolled a die I want to know what happened that day when it, when you first came across it. So how were you introduced to tabletop gaming?
0: So I was introduced when it was around 2004. Uh, so it was just after The Return of the King came out. And one day I was around at my friend at the time who uh, I, we'd never heard of miniature gaming or anything. And he had just walked into a games workshop that day and bought the... Um, the the warriors of menace Terrace, i think star set the ones that games workshop used to do where it came with the paint um and it came with like eight little guys and then you got the paints to paint them and i saw those figures and i just felt something inside my head go yeah yeah (laughs) this this is gonna be a problem And then yeah, so I I got into the Lord of the Rings, and then fantasy, and then 40k, and then War Machine, and then Guild Ball.
1: So gotcha. That's that's a very common progression. Um, I still argue to this day that uh, Lord of the Rings is one of the better games that GW ever put out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, really the only gap for that game where I ended up losing interest with it because it wasn't the. I mean, the models are really nice, and um, and the rules were pretty good. Um, hmm. the problem hmm. was, is the, uh, wind condition, what, what end up, ha- what I ended up always every game I ever played a match game, right? Not a scenario, but every match game I ever played, you just ended up with everybody piling up in the middle of the board and beating the hell out of each other, Yeah, which is fun. Um, but I always felt like that was the only thing missing. There was just something that, uh, kind of changed it up a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, good game. Um, I, so
0: I, I don't know that, um, I, I think in tournament play, cause Jamie Giblin, who I, I, I I was about to say, I work with, I used to work with. (laughs) Uh, He played a lot of uh, the Hobbit and the Love of the Rings strategy battle game uh, over the last kind of 10 years, I think. And apparently in tournaments, it's all sort of scenario-based, and there are actually scenarios that kind of shake that up a little bit, which sounds really good, because you're right, that was always one of the big weaknesses in standard play, as it were.
1: Right. Yeah. And and I got I admit that I, I mean, I haven't played the game in 10 years, so I'm sure a lot has happened. There's a whole new edition out since uh, since I last played. So you the progression from Lord of the Rings to fantasy, very natural fantasy and 40K, very natural. But then there's the jump, which is leaving GW for privateer press and getting into War Machine. What What caused that to happen?
0: So, that was because um, we were essentially, at the time, there was a, myself and a group of players that I used that I grew up with, essentially, um, and one of them had been sort of chatting to people online and sort of hearing about War Machine. And at the same time, we'd been playing competitive 40K uh, and going to tournaments for it. And we actually went to, I think, like the second ever Nova Open or something in 2011, like wow. I was, I think nineteen, maybe twenty, uh, and I the three of us uh, flew over and we went and played the Open, and that was when we actually, ironically, even though we went to play 40k, we ended up getting to know a lot of the War Machine players there, and we went to play 40k and left with about seventy dollars worth of War Machine books. And then we all sat on the flight on the way back reading the War Machine books. Uh, and then we sort of never really looked back. Um, yeah. we. I am by nature, um, when it comes to tournament game, like when it comes to gaming, I am by nature a very competitive tournament gamer. Or rather, I wasn't. And then I grew up with two people that were. And so my choices were get beat literally every game or right. get, get good enough to, <laughs> to actually compete um and so i eventually got got that good and um never really looked back because war machine did that much better than 40k did for me it it provided the thing that i was looking for out of the game much better than than 40k ever did
1: yeah a much better rule set and and far more built for competitive play i think that um i i tend to get on gw a little bit more than i probably should um especially since the changes they've made recently but um you know i think that if if you're playing 40k and aos um to have fun and throw dice and stuff like that they're fantastic Mm. they're really good and you can't beat the lore and stuff like that but i think if you are a competitive mindset and you come across something like war machine you're like oh wow there's a whole new world here yeah yeah definitely so when you migrated to Guild Ball, was that uh, a career decision? Was that um, you're getting tired of um, uh, War Machine? Like, let's talk about that last jump there. So it was a combination
0: of uh, definitely a career decision because I started playing Guild Ball in 2015. Um, and at the time, I was, like, going to the World Team Championship for for War Machine, and I was playing, like, near constant War Machine. And then in the tail end of 2015, Jamie Perkins uh, approached me and said, hey, we knew each other a little bit through through War Machine. He was like, hey, uh, you have a, an English degree and you're good at English. We need uh, a proofreader. I was originally oh, what I came on, yeah. So I came on originally to be like a proofreader and a, and a rules editor. And my credit to this day on the Guild Ball Season 2 rulebook is actually as an editor, not a, a developer. But... Once I started working with them, I very quickly started doing development work, and so I took I got the job at Steamforge in May 2016 officially, but I'd already been working for them for about six months, kind of on and off, uh, as it were. And then, so that was May 2016, and then in I think July 2016, March 3 War Machine dropped, and that 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 mark suffered from a lot of it was overhyped by Privateer Press because they made a very big deal about how it had been playtested for three years and it was going to be like incredibly balanced and X, Y, and Z and it was, they made a huge deal about it and then when it came out there were, I remember laughing because there were a bunch of basic typos on a lot of the cards that they said they'd been testing for three years and it turned out the game wasn't any more balanced than Mark II had been it was just different stuff was powerful and um, right. And so that really sort of precipitated uh, a drop-off in War Machine for me anyway, and at the time, the Guild Ball competitive scene was starting to get going, so I kind of jumped straight into that, and I kept playing War Machine until, I think, the end of 2017. I kept playing it for another year, maybe two years, but it became the kind of thing where instead of traveling to international tournaments, I was... Kind of going to local events and playing with a couple of people that I saw, and and not yep. really getting more widely involved in the community. And Guild Ball straight up replaced that, where that was the game that I was I was all in on, and I was playing all the time.
1: No, I never played War Machine, but from my understanding, Bryce, the thing about War Machine is you can't get behind, right? Like you have to stay very active. You have to stay on top of the shifting metas and and the changes. Otherwise, you kind of get left in the dust. I've always got the impression that meta knowledge. Of the entire line can be a, a huge factor in your win loss percentage.
0: So yeah, there's there was a thing that we used to say when back when I played War Machine super competitively, which was no matter how bad your enemy Warcaster, which is like a, a you know your Guild Ball captain, yep, the Warcaster is the equivalent of War Machine. No matter how bad the enemy Warcaster is, the first time you play against it, you'll probably lose because every Warcaster, even the worst ones have a trick, they have one thing they can do well. And if you don't know how to counter that thing, you'll probably lose. And every time after that, you're like, I oh, no, I know this now, it's fine. And War Machine, so knowledge, in-depth knowledge of the game has always been very important. Yeah. But that has gotten a lot worse with the arrival of Mark Three and with uh, community integrated development, which is essentially Priority Press are throwing stuff out to the community to engage with and to like publicly test and the problem is they're doing like three of these or four of these a year and so they're literally ratting huge sections of the game every three or four months plus new releases of course like there's still new stuff coming out of it and War Machine was already a big game yeah. at the start, Like even going into Mark 3 War Machine was already huge and so now It's interesting you say that because I was talking to one of my friends earlier who hasn't been able to play for six months because of COVID. And he's like, I already feel behind (laughs) and no one's been able to play because of COVID. But it's been six months and there have been changes and releases. And I got it so much. And that's someone that's played the game since 2013, I think. And now that he's had to take six months out, he's like, I don't know if I can get back into this because it's so the mental road is so exhausting for War Machine.
1: yeah and that and that becomes a real barrier um, yeah. part of the reason why i found guild ball and started straying from 40k is um i had kind of gotten lax about keeping track of uh changes in 40k a new edition had come out and i didn't immediately buy it and play it um and i sat down and played a game with somebody and i was not on top of the rules and I got so frustrated because the kind of player I am is I, I like to know the rules. I like to be the person in the room that everybody goes, hey, Craig, how did how yeah. does this work? And that's yeah, just yeah. How, how I am. And that's part of my enjoyment of the game is is not is understanding the mechanics. Right. And I got I got behind on 40. I can't imagine, though, how frustrating that must be for your buddy and for anybody uh, losing that. And it'll be interesting. and it's something we'll kind of talk about a little bit here in a bit is well, that'll be interesting for the future. Of the game, yeah, Uh, because I bet his feelings are not alone um, in feeling uh, uh, out of it um, and not on top of it. So, one of the things we've been doing with this Insider Insights series is it's my chance to talk with game designers and industry insiders from all over the world. Now, Bryce recently has started a podcast called an I A Y E for Games. Uh, And today we're going to dig into not only his thoughts on the tabletop gaming landscape, but I also want to uh, learn about the next jump from editor to uh, game designer. And I want to get an idea of what his thoughts and approaches are to game design. Um, So, Bryce, we're in an interesting time for tabletop gaming right now. Um, Board games continue to do well, and they've been doing well for a long time. I think the Euro uh board games maybe about a dozen years ago really started to become prominent um and now you can go to Target and buy Settlers of Catan right we still see new card games coming out that are doing well like uh the new Marvel one is doing very well um and then you've got Magic the Gathering which has been around as long as I've been in gaming um you've got GW engaging the community in a whole new way you've got uh big companies like uh uh, cool Mini or Not is putting out uh, miniature actual mini games, not board games, but smaller companies like Weird, Corvus Bell, uh, uh, Steamforged, um, they're in you know, a privateer press. The smaller guys are still you know, putting out new things, um, but a lot's changed and we kind of hinted at it. Um, and I would be interested to know um, what you think the pandemic is doing to gaming now. And I'd like to know whether you think there'll be a hangover, whether you think that um, what we're seeing now may not be completely temporary.
0: So what the, the the pandemic's having a number of different effects on gaming and it's not having an effect equally over the whole gaming, over the whole tabletop gaming industry. So to break it down a little bit, for instance, RPGs are booming right now. Um, because RPGs, you can jump on a Skype call and you can play an RPG with your friends, and that actually, I know a lot of people who are literally doing that purely because it helps them keep in touch with friends because yep. of COVID. And so RPGs are doing really well, but I don't know how much they're actually selling because RPGs have always had that issue of one person buys a rule book and they DM 25 people off it. And yep. so... That industry, like D and D, is always going to make money. But I wonder if the smaller companies are going to start getting like a little bit hurt by that. But then you've also got like online PDFs and people. There does seem to be a sort of nice move in RPGs and smaller uh, companies generally to sp- stuff like putting stuff up on drive through and basically saying like, "Hey, you don't have to buy this; it's free." But Please, you know, this helps me pay rent. Please please give me a little bit of money for it. So I think that's what a lot of uh, smaller companies will do. But in general, RPGs, good, doing very well right now. The pandemic ultimately has benefited them in terms of more people are playing RPGs than ever. Yep. Card games, uh, I think, is a really interesting one because we were already seeing prior to COVID a shift to online card games. So Magic the Gathering is one you mentioned. They've made a big shift towards MPG Arena. And uh, for instance, uh, Age of Sigmar Champions, which kind of died physically prior to this already, but they've seen a little bit of a resurgence online. Um, There are a bunch of other examples. I know uh, there was once like Monster Train or something that uh, my friend DC worked on recently. Um, And so this does seem to be the future of card games. And I think card games were already heading in that direction. But COVID has really accelerated that move because it means you can play from home. It means you don't have to go down a gaming store on a Friday night and do Friday night magic with a hundred other play carriers. Um, (laughs) So I think generally speaking, card games will for for the foreseeable because there's a lot of other benefits to moving online. Like your costs are a hell of a lot lower. You don't have to worry about outdated like game stores don't have to worry about carrying outdated stock because they're not going to have the the magic cards from two cycles ago just sitting taking up space in a stock room yeah. um and also it's kind of interesting because i i played a bunch of age of sigmar champions online at the start of the pandemic because it was a game i played physically when it first came out and then the communities for it sort of died in my area and i kind of never really bothered getting back into it But then when the pandemic hit and I was put on furlough, I was like I have literally nothing but time and this game is technically free to play. So inevitably I spent money on it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I spent like 20 quid or something to get a decent deck. And one thing that I really realized playing that was because that game relies on a lot of card moving and a lot of wound tokens and counters and numbers going up and down. Much the same as Magic has your life total and mana and all that sort of thing that's so much better online yeah like it's so much easier like you just instead of going right so it's the start of my turn i do this i do this i do this you take uh uh, you take five damage and then uh, and like someone gets a rule wrong because there's a precise timing method that you've screwed up because you kind of just did it all at the start of your turn you just click a button and the computer does it and you're like oh great cool (laughs) <laughs> and so that kind of paradoxically leads to not paradoxically, I guess, but it leads to way less downtime and way yep. less uh, scorekeeping and way less sort of messing about, really.
1: And less bookkeeping.
0: Bookkeeping, thank you. That is yep. clearly the word I was trying to remember. <laughs> um, and so I think that's going to be the future of card games, and we already saw it with Hearthstone. Like that's always been a virtual card game, and it's it's always done very well. And I think that's where card games are going in the future. And COVID has made that all but an an inevitability at this point.
1: So what scares me about that, because I don't disagree with you, Bryce, but what scares me about that is um, that's what keeps the local game stores open, uh, is selling cards. Um, Now, our local store, we have three big ones here in the Raleigh area, which we're very lucky um, to have them. And my main one that I go to, they're still open. Uh, I know people that work there. They still are getting their hours. People are coming in and people are spending money with them. Um, but I don't know how sustainable it is long term. Have you noticed anything as far as uh, local game stores around you? So
0: local game stores around me, they're all shut at the moment. Um, Element Games is the biggest one, which I imagine everyone has seen ads for <laughs> online. And yep. you have ordered from them. Element Games is my local gaming store. It is a ten minute, 10, 15 minute drive from where I from where I live. They were open very briefly while uh, the lockdown restrictions were eased in England uh, about God like a month ago or so. But since then, Manchester's had another local lockdown, and so no, like gaming stores around here are just shut. Yeah. Um, however, one thing I do know is that uh, gaming stores generally are making are, are doing pretty well on online sales um so any gaming store that's invested in online sales is doing pretty well at the moment however if they haven't invested in online sales they're going to be they're going to struggle pretty hard yeah,
1: they're going to shut down yeah. quite frankly yeah. i mean the margin on them is so small to begin with yeah i mean they but, struggle to begin with i just don't know how how deep their pockets could be
0: yeah i mean gaming stores are all almost always run as a labor of love. Like if yep. someone, someone runs a gaming store and he pay they pay themselves probably minimum wage, but they do it because they enjoy running a gaming store. Um, and yeah, I there's a lot of industries that are going to get hit. Anything like, um, I know there's been a lot of problem with arts funding and stuff, particularly in the UK. Like a lot of my friends who worked in theaters or bands or like I have a few friends who are stand up comedians, and they are just like, I don't know when I can work again. yeah Yeah. so they're they're all having to go back to do just their day jobs and this is just going to wreck their career um and i think gaming stores absolutely fall into that any any place that is designed primarily to allow people to congregate and you're struggling right now because people cannot congregate currently and i think this will lead to an overall change not for the whole society but certainly for a large chunk of society even once this if Sorry, this ever goes away, which we don't know if it is at the moment. It's never going to go back to normal, I yeah. don't think, unless there is a vaccine and the vaccine works 100% of the time and everyone can get it for for very cheap and that's it. You, this is never going to go back to normal. Um, well,
1: and it's also assuming we don't have something else Similar yeah. happened, right? Yeah. Which, which I don't think is talked about enough is that this is not the only story, you know? It's this we've had this in the past, nothing to nothing this drastic, but um, by no means are we guaranteed that it's never going to happen again. But now let's talk about mini games, right? Yeah. So, I'm a, I love malaphone Guild Ball, obviously, you're a Guild Ball Privateer Press fan. Um, I can't, there's Modules to pl- there's a thing called Vassal that makes it very easy to play malifaux online. I can't stand it as much yeah. as I love Malifo. I can't stand it. Um, I've played God Tier online and it's fine. Um, yeah. I played Legion online and it's fine. Um, but this has made me realize how much the tactile face to face was a huge part of my love of the hobby. Um, in your mind, do you think that there's going to be a hangover for mini games as well?
0: Uh, 100%. Um, but also again and this is something i've been talking about how it affects different types of games differently it also affects different types of miniature games differently because games workshop have left have, i don't think ever been doing better than right yeah. now and to drill into that it's because every like games workshop was the monolithic entity that existed and so every other gaming company is to one extent or another dependent on Games Workshop, but also mm-hmm. not set up deliberately in opposition to Games Workshop. So every other company tends to prioritize rules much higher than Games Workshop does because Games Workshop games, they see themselves, they're a miniatures company. The rules only exist to give you something to do with your miniatures. Yeah. And so Games Workshop have been knocking it out of the park during lockdown with going, hey, uh, going, here's a chance to paint up your back catalogue. Here's a chance to start that new army you've always been thinking about. And they can do that because I would I would pause it, right? Looking at, say, the, the four elements of, let's say, 40K, you've got the background, you've got the miniatures, which are stunning, you've got the background, which is incredible, you have the, uh, the huge and very active community, and you have the rules. Mm-hmm. I would posit that probably zero percent of 40k players of those four things went. The rules are the reason I'm playing this game.
1: Uh, No question,
0: right? Like, yep. And we're not saying the rule, and that's not saying the rules are bad or the rules aren't or people don't enjoy the rules. But the rules are never the reason why people play 40k. If you drill down into it, yeah, and so. Games Workshop has been very well positioned to deal with this pandemic, and also it helps that they're the biggest player in the industry by a massive margin, and blah blah blah. Like they had a lot of um, they had a lot of fallbacks and contingencies, I assume.
1: Uh, and their supply chain, I think, helps them as well too. Yeah, the fact yeah, yeah. that they're uh, far more self sufficient than a lot of others.
0: Yeah, because their supply chain is almost all internal, so yep. they're not going. Well, the factory in China shut down, we don't know when that's getting back up, and then we don't know how we're gonna ship it because the suppliers aren't answering our emails because of COVID, blah, blah, blah. They're, absolutely. Yeah. But that means that stuff like um Gilball, well obviously Gilball, uh like Private Press, like Malifou, because they've put a much higher emphasis on rules, they you need to play the games. <laughs> like yep. the model the model quality is more. Um, not necessarily because those companies want it to be, but purely because no one can match Games Workshop's model quality. Like I, nope. I got the um, the Luminess, uh box set. Uh, one of my friends got it for me as a as a house warming present because I'm I moved. I was very lucky. I moved into a new house literally two days before lockdown started. Wow! So it was we got out because myself and my fiance were in a one bedroom flat. And imagine. <laughs> Being locked down for six months <laughs> in a one-bedroom flat, <laughs> um and so yeah, so one of my friends bought bought me the Womanist box as a moving-in present, and there were points where I'm pretty sure the sculptors were just showing off, yeah. like you know what I mean like I'm I'm cutting out bits and I'm like oh screw you how did you do that like that's just ridiculous, um and so other companies because the model quality is generally poor and um, also, other games tend to be smaller. Like a lot of the games we're talking about, like Malifaux, Gellbol God Here, uh, there are others that I can't remember are all like more in that skirmish vein. Like Infinity as well, much more in yep. the skirmish vein. And so, there's less of a buy-in to be like, "Hey, start a new faction," because starting a new faction is sixty quid rather than starting a Games Workshop army where that's three four hundred quid yep. uh, minimum. <laughs> Yeah. Um and so I think as you say there are a lot of ways of playing online like tabletop simulators has been getting very popular and um Vassal obviously but I'm the same as you I played a bunch of Vassal and it it doesn't scratch the itch. It doesn't turn on that same part of my brain that goes, "Oh, I can play this game. I can beat my opponent." It's just like it feels much more like I'm just like, yeah, click, click. Blah, yeah, I guess it's fine. And so, I think miniature games, Games Workshop was always the biggest player in the industry, and I think they are only going to get stronger off of this because their sales have been extraordinary and have probably gone up, if anything, during coronavirus. Whereas, I think every other company is is going to be in much more trouble.
1: Yeah, it's, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, Bryce. Um, yeah, uh, in, interesting to see um, companies that were. Struggling to begin with. Um, uh, there's some timing issues, too. Like, I feel bad for Corvus Bell because they're supposed to be unleashing this brand new version of Infinity. And, of course, right. you know, now they're going to do it in in this thing. And I know Privateer Press was kind of unleashing a new version of uh, War Machine um, from, with a different angle and this, you know, kind of squash it. Um, I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. Um, same from the board game perspective too. Um, though the one thing that's nice about board games, uh, and I had this conversation with a buddy of mine is I can buy a board game today and sit down with my wife or the three other couples that we have, you know, have, I've have trusted to, to, you know, spend time with, uh, because of the protocols they follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't socialize that way with people to play mini games. My wife is not going to play Marvel Crisis Protocol with me. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that changes things a, a little bit.
0: I, I, was, I actually was reading an article, uh, I think about this today, where board games, there's the thing where board games are much more innately. You buy the board game and 90%, like if you're like most board gamers, 90% of the time, the board game sits on the shelf. And you play it maybe once a month talks. And that's if it's one of your favorite board games. Yep. But from the board game company's point of view, they don't really care. They made a game in a box, you bought the game in a box. If you play it and like it, that's great and tell your friends, but ultimately they've sold you the product and you have the product. Miniature games are con have to, by their nature, constantly expand. And that means you have to keep buying things. It's it's a much harder beast to make. But like, if you think of miniature games that are profitable, like, and I mean, like, really make a lot of money, you're talking Games Workshop, so 40k fantasy, uh, uh, SF, FFG, so X Wing, or maybe Armada, I think it makes slightly less money, it's not as big, but it's expensive. And the final one is Marvel Crisis, Protocol. Yep, like stuff like uh, Gilball, stuff like Malifaux, the smaller ones, even War Machine now those games don't make a lot of money like they, they probably they make a profit they make enough to kind of pay for themselves but they don't make a lot of money and by the nature of war games they have to expand so over time they get more and more expensive by, by the nature of miniature games sorry they, they get more and more expensive and that gradually the cost and the the profit slowly gets eaten away unless your sales are also constantly increasing The final point on board games versus miniature games, because I do think board games are doing quite a bit better in COVID than miniature games, is, as you say, you usually have a small group of maybe eight, like, let's say eight people, absolute tops, that you consider close enough friends. Maybe it's your family and one other family, and you feel safe enough to interact with them during COVID. And you can play board games with them, because it's usually families, whereas miniature games tends to be, uh, it's a very competitive game so you need a much larger gaming circle generally to sustain it which yep. is usually up to about 20 25 people which in the state of covid is not a group you can vouch for and there there are bound to be people in that group of maybe 25 that you're like nah, i don't i don't trust that you're doing you know i don't trust that you're going to wear a mask and you're you're going to do all the right things you know and so yeah. Board games tend to be more intimate, I guess, is my is my point than miniature games.
1: Yeah, I can tell you right now, uh, Bryce, even if uh, Tuesday Night Gaming opened up at my game shop again and I would go every Tuesday night, I'd go and I'd play something. i played play Malfolk, Marvel Crisis Protocol or whatever. If they started doing it right now, I wouldn't go. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, For the exact same reason that you're talking about. Um, Guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to learn a little bit more about uh, Bryce's perspective on miniature games, kind of where they were, where they are now, and some of the things that he thinks um, could be changes that we see, some trends from a design perspective. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play custom meeple are the source for the official accessories for malifaux everything is designed by hand and authorized by weird games check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one m or follow the link in the show notes up your malifaux game and be sure to tell them craig from the third floor sent you if you use the promo code third floor friend all one word t-h-i-r-d f-l-o-o-r-f-r-i-e-n-d you'll get a five percent discount and help support the podcast it's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So we kind of hinted at it before the break, Bryce, you know, that um, we've got quite quite a journey happening here with miniature games. And uh, you know, when you got started, when I got started, which is much earlier than you did, because I'm older than you, but um, we've seen a, really an arc. Um, and I'd be curious to know um what you see, and maybe you even have to think about it pre COVID what do you see kind of the industry? So the mini game as an overall industry, do you see it moving in a different direction? So um, had COVID not happened or maybe as time passes off, what do you think was six months from now, a year from now was, uh, what are some trends that you noticed? So
0: one of the biggest trends has been a blurring of the lines between um, board games, card games, and miniature games. And I think, you see that with, for instance, God Tier from Steamport Games because it's marketed and sold uh, in that sort of board game style. I mean, it started originally much earlier though with X Wing. I actually think it was one of the first ones to do it, where you buy the starter set and it's like a game in a box, and it comes with absolutely everything, all the tokens, everything. Whereas traditionally for miniature games, you would have to buy all the tokens and stuff separately. And yeah. um, like, I'm thinking about War Machine particularly. There is a huge side market for companies that make like licensed tokens and stuff and x-wing sort of started with that and armada with ffg and i think you're going to see a lot more of that um going forward because miniature games are traditionally apart from games workshop which is always a sort of outlier in everything because it's just it's the biggest player in the industry and no one I don't think anyone is ever going to touch Games Workshop. FFG managed to get to a similar sales level with X Wing, but they don't have anything like that. The the terms of the community painting because they all of their stuff is pre-painted as well, which is another huge factor for getting board game players in. Um, And also the fact that they all use all of their games use custom movement widgets. Because Mm -hmm. when you're trying to get board gamers to play miniature games, which board gamers are a much bigger market, one of the things that often puts people off is free movement and having to, like, standing around with a measuring tape or widgets and and measure your movement. And personally, that's one of the things I love about miniature games. Yeah. But I am aware that makes me, in terms of the market, very much in the minority. And so board gamers want everything they need in that box. And um, I think, yeah, I really think you're going to start seeing that is already the biggest trend in the market. And even even, um, for instance, Seamon with A Song of Ice and Fire, you saw the same mm-hmm. thing. Custom movement widgets, custom dives, custom everything that you need in all in a box. And um, one of the more interesting games, that I think, has come out recently is War- uh, Warhammer Underworlds, uh, because it is a... A weird sort of blend of like, I would argue it's more of a card game than a miniature game.
1: It's a collectible card game. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. because yeah.
0: They, they, they also went for the FFG model of yep. if you want to play competitively, you have to buy every box. And yep. I I did play during the first two seasons of of uh well, I, I want to call it Shadespire because that's what it was called. And then they were like, actually the real name's Warhammer Underworlds. And I'm like, nah, Shadeswire's a better name, like, lad. <laughs> um, so I played heavily during the first two seasons, and I, I actually won a Grand Clash uh, back wow. years ago. Um, But I got out of it because it was the collectible card game model, where I was like, I started looking at every new release. Instead of a release, I saw another little blip and there were going to be little blips every month where I was going to, if I wanted to keep playing this game, I'm going to have to spend 20 quid a month and yep. stay in. And if you get out of it, because I, I I took a break from what I intended to be a break from the game. And then six months later, I was like, God, I need to spend 100 quid if I want to get back into this. And it really put me off. But I think the game itself is actually a very interesting blend of, and it's Games Workshop going for, for the card game market um and they market it as the ultimate competitive miniatures game which i think is very funny because it's not a miniatures game it's not the best miniatures game in the world right <laughs> um because there are three separate points of variation in that game with your power deck objective deck and dice compared to something like war machine or ball where traditional yeah. games only have one point of variation um not to say it's a, it, it's a good game um because it is and i very much enjoyed playing it but uh yeah so i think so i think you're going to see a lot more blending of traditionally separate styles of games and i think underworld is a big sign of it god is a big sign of it um a song of Ace of fire everything ffg do because yep. ffg have inserted themselves into the miniature game market by having a star having star wars right at the end of the day, you can strap just about anything and put a, you can, you can strap a Star Wars license to literally anything and you're going to make money. Yep. And it lets them artificially kind of instantly insert themselves into a market in a way that no other miniatures game has been able to achieve except Marvel Crisis Protocol.
1: I was just about to say that's yep. the other license that's big enough now too. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, again, Marvel Crisis Protocol uses a lot of the same stuff FFG does because it doesn't use measuring tapes. It uses, like, its own movement widgets. It uses its, it's own, own dice. Its own dice. And the the move away from standard D6s is actually something that's been coming for a while. And I think, like, that is a much more common part of miniature games than it was 10 years ago. And I think that will continue to be more like a more common part. Is using your own custom dice because they they let you do things in ways that normal d6s don't, and they aid player interaction. Even if because so in shade and shades Fire, it could be that like a six is a crit, a four or five is as a hammer, a three is a sword, a one is a as a whatever. Right. Or by putting your own by putting your own system on there, you aid player uh it's player legibility because it's easier for a for a casual player to just pick up and instead of having to whip up like a table or something in a book you just go i roll the hit that's good um and also side point at which you make lots of your own custom dice and sell them that no one else is making
1: Yeah, and I would imagine um, that from a design perspective, too, it opens up something, too, right? So you can can only redesign a D6 so many times. It's one through six. Whereas if you've got dice, you've got a new potential mechanic. And that's actually where I want to talk a little bit, um, Bryce. So let's go back to the movement widgets, right? So you've got... And not just movement widgets, but let's look at, like, say, God Tier Shadespire, right? Where you've got the hexagonal limited movement you have board spaces, right? Or you go to uh, Legion, Marvel Crisis Protocol, um, X-Wing, where you've got widgets that, that limit the movement. From a design perspective, um, what do you th- what is good about that? Like, as a designer, what makes you go, oh, thank God we're going to go this direction? And, or, and what is something that you uh, worry about as a designer? Uh, but let's focus on what you like it. Um, if you were, if someone said to you, Bryce, I need you to design this game. My only requirement is it's going to be a hexagonal board, or it's going to use these widgets. What does that? What does that offer you as a designer?
0: Uh, so, if we take the three points of the compass on this one as free movement, widget-based movement, and uh, hexes, heck, like the two extremes, free movement gives you free movement, right? Like the strengths of that are. are it, it aids player positioning and it makes player it makes positioning the most one of the most skillful elements of any game it's part of right and that appeals to a certain potential part of people the downside is that it feels you get to situations where people are like "Ah, oh, i'm point one of an inch out of this measurement it also leads to movements where it models on a tabletop inevitably are going to get knocked they're going to get like Like you're going to put a fist down on one of them at some point and you're going to have to be like, this was somewhere in this area and just sort of hope that you're putting it down. And it's important,
1: as we've already said, right?
0: Exactly. Because free movement is, in any game free movement is part of, movement is, I mean, actually, no, in any game, movement is one of the most important things, right? But in free movement games, it takes on an extra level of skill. And of uh, planning around what your opponent's doing and planning around threat ranges, and that can sometimes lead to um, analysis paralysis, as a term we use, where you you don't want to walk into your opponent's threat ranges, and that's been um, made made worse in some ways by the fact that basically every miniature game that uses free movement now uses pre-measuring, um, which I think is overall a positive because it does mean you're not ever in those feel bad situations where you positioned 1.1 of an inch out of an enemy model, and it's like, oh, well, I suck, I lose, <laughs> Yeah. The final point of free movement and pre-measuring is that the downside is that you sometimes end up in a situation where you're just spending all of your time measuring your opponent's threat ranges and staying out of them, and that can often lead to very unfun game states. Uh, widget-based movement is a sort of... Uh, a hybrid territory in the middle where movement is free to an extent because you're using widgets. And so each model, instead of having literally infinite ways it can travel around, because it can go to any of the 360 degree points of the compass, a model can only maybe has five points at which it can travel. So it cuts down on analysis paralysis a lot in that regard, and it makes player choice a lot easier. It's also much less intimidating because for a lot of newer players and a lot of board game players, they look at free movement and they go, oh, "I I don't know what where I'm supposed to go." There are so many the potential options, as I say, are literally infinite. Whereas with yep, re- by reducing the number of options, you actually in some ways increase player choice because it's people prefer. I was really this reading this really interesting psychological thing today that if you give people in a supermarket. 24 types of let's say jam they are way less likely to buy something than if they only have a choice of four types of jam and i think that's really interesting because that's where the big benefit of uh widget-based movement comes in um and also in some regards it's cleaner because you know you're not trying to measure a tape measure over the table and going yeah this is roughly six inches you know um, and so it's it's good in that regard. And also, I think the, the coolest part of games that use it are games that use, like, custom ones and use that very heavily to push the game. X-Wing being a really good example or Star Wars Armada being a really good example. Yep. Hexes are the best option in terms of cleanliness of play because if a model is in a hex, it's in a hex. If it gets knocked, you know it was in that hex, right? So it is very very clear and simple and easy to understand for new players uh the downside is it is the most constrained of all the options because yeah okay you can move through say three hexes in any direction and so there are more options than under a widget-based system but ultimately the finer points of this this is an inch here an inch there doesn't matter it's you're in a hex or you're out of a hex it's a very binary system in that regard
1: yeah, and I think the other thing too, and I would imagine as a designer, this is important uh, because I know that uh, I think I'm trying to think of the term I've heard where you have, you have a, a certain amount of currency as a designer, right? Mm. So uh, as rules, and you can you have to decide where you're going to, where you're going to complicate it and where you're going to oversimplify because you only have a certain amount of currency you can spend. Yeah. Um, You can't just make everything complicated because you're going to end up with a shitty game and you can't make everything too simple because you'll end up with a, a shitty game as well. So you've got to figure out where, where to spend that. Right. And I would imagine that, um, you know, the difference between a hex movement is one page in the rule book and free movement is seven pages in a rule book. Yeah. And that matters. Right.
0: Yeah. Like that's a huge factor. And in- I guess I've been talking about it more from player experience point of view, but yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Describing a model can move three hexes in any direction is much simpler than, um, trying to describe that a model can move up to its maximum value in any direction. And like, especially when you get into terrain is actually the key point there because terrain and free movement systems almost always sucks. Yeah. Like, it's really hard to make terrain that is both relevant and interesting and not overwhelming and how models of free movement interact with terrain is like those are often the bits of rule books and and for free movement games that take up a vast amount of space for what is technically not really much of a gain in terms of is does this make the game fun whereas with hexes if there's terrain in this hex and you're in this hex, you get X effect, or you just can't go in this hex because it's terrain, and that's a very simple method.
1: Yeah, no, I agree, and you know, obviously, you know, for me, um, the hexes take away part of the experience, but yeah. that's also that's also you know the fact that um, you know I've been playing war games for a very long time, right? So I'm setting my ways. I, I long I long jumped that hurdle. A free mm-hmm. movement. And mm-hmm. now I'm very familiar with it. When I, you know, when I went from 40 K to guild ball, I was like, okay, yeah, I know how to do this, you know, yeah. but if guild ball was my first game, it'd be like, Whoa, you know, like I can go anywhere. That's crazy. You know? So I'd already, I'd already fought that battle. Um, So I'm going to try to figure out how to, to phrase this or ask this question, Bryce, in your mind, would you be better off investing in tape measures or in hex boards, if you're an investor right now, which direction do you think we're going? Are, we, are Do you, you see us going more to the constrained movement? Or do you think it's going to swing back again? We're going to see more free movement? Or is it going to be balanced the way it is now? Is there enough desire for both?
0: So I think if you look at almost every new game that's come out in the last five years, I can't think of one that uses free movement, like completely free movement. Um, so generally speaking there is a big trend away from that in the industry at the moment however gaming like most things is cyclical I suspect that you're going to see in the next maybe few years still and I think Covid obviously is going to have a massive effect of just shutting things down for the foreseeable future because it's very difficult to develop and test the game particularly a miniatures game. Like a board game, I I can test in my living room, right? If I'm te- like, if I have to test a board game, it's harder trying to test two or three or four player versions. But ultimately, yeah. I can do it on my kitchen table, and I can sort of figure it out miniatures games. You pretty much need another person there to do any real testing, and so that's another way in which gate another way in which miniature games are are hamstrung by COVID. But generally speaking there was a huge trend away from free movement. And I think in the short term, you're not going to see any more free movement games, at least none that make a big impact. some right.
1: Indie games might do it. But yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, indie games might do it. However, give it five years, hmm. 10 years, then a lot of people are going to go, oh, there's not a lot of free movement games in the market. Maybe this is now an angle that we can approach and go for the, the free movement gamers. Um, so unhelpfully i think both are going to be seen (laughs) but i think in the short term we are absolutely never like we're not going to see any big free movement games in the short term and i i can't wait for this podcast to come out and then the day after that a brand (laughs) new like marvel free movement game or something's going to come out that's pretty much how it
1: always works yeah yeah, um so before we uh leave talking about just miniature games the the one thing that i'd be curious to know um is you know you have um been a part of designing more than one game um and there's there's different aspects uh i'm learning as i talk to designers there's there's different aspects of design um and i'd be interested what part do you like the most is it um the, the The meta concepts is it um, balance, is it mechanics? is it um, translating lore into mechanics like if you were to if someone were to say, Bryce, what is your favorite thing? What do you get most excited about when you're when you're designing a game? Is, is there a certain part of that 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 excites you the most?
0: Yeah, there's a lot that so designing a game or, or developing a game from scratch there's uh, one of my favorite things is when you first see the concept for something for the game and you see the very initial sort of rough scrap, like the, what we call like the, the, the napkin, you know what I mean? Like you you get handed a napkin by your designer and he goes, I think this is good. Make, yeah. do, make this. And there's a point where you, you take that very rough concept and your brain starts fizzing and you're like, I can see what this can be and that is a really beautiful feeling that where you kind of you see the seeds and you, you know that you're going to make an oak tree out of it you know right um and that's that's really just a good feeling and then the other part is yeah I, I would actually really say that one of the most fun parts of, of developing stuff is um when you get to take something from lore and figure out how to put it in the game in a cool way because that feels very very satisfying protect like if you get it anything even close to right that's always the stuff you get the best responses from the community on um so yeah that's that's just an awesome feeling when you get to put something from the lore in
1: yeah, it's 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 neat. It's something that I love about Gilball uh, and part of what I really love about Malifaux. Um, and quite frankly, it's kind of what I'm digging about Marvel, Marvel Crisis Protocol, too, is that, I mean, each of those games feel like Gilball felt like the books and the stories I read. Malifaux feels like, you know, that. And and I feel like I'm playing superheroes when I'm playing Marvel Crisis Protocol. Yeah. So, um, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about something I actually have not broached on this podcast before, but Lord knows you get five, uh, gamers together and it's the subject will come up. But we're, I want to talk to Bryce about playtesting. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends here on the third floor. You'll find us playing Malifaux and other tabletop games using mats by Mars. Their mats are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase-marker-compatible, and lighter than neoprene. Their mats use a new material that eliminates almost all glare, which is perfect if you're filming battle reports or you're under some glaring lights. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a print or design, and then choose an overlay for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition Strats and Schemes. The overlays will speed up your deployment and the placement of all of your objective markers. Until the end of September 2020, you can use the new promo code 3rdFloor920 to get a 10% discount on your next order. The promo code is in the show notes. When you place your order, don't be afraid to tell Mats by Mars you'd like a 3rd Floor Wars logo to be put on your mat at no charge. It's the only way to make the best mat in the market even cooler. Again, use the promo code Third Floor Nine Twenty to get a ten percent discount. All the details are in the show notes. So I kind of dipped into it a little bit with Bryce talking about what's the most exciting. Um, I have been told off the record by a few designers that play testing is a brutal process, um, but boil oh boy, is it a necessary process and. If uh, you sit down somebody and they are, and you ask them, you know, where did this game go wrong? I guarantee the topic of playtesting is going to come up. Um, anytime a new edition comes out, playtesting is going to be a subject. Anytime a new wave of models comes out, playtesting is going to be a discussion. Um, so, Bryce, um, I'm not quite sure where to even start. Um, let's start with something simple. From a design perspective, what is the goal of playtesting? So that's a difficult
0: question because there are multiple types of
1: playtesting,
0: is the answer. There is the playtesting you do initially when you have a concept to make sure that the concept functionally works. And at that point, you have to literally turn 90% of your brain off. The part of your brain that's going, oh, that's really overpowered. That's silly. Blah, blah, blah. That is absolutely irrelevant, right? Yep. The point of initial playtesting is, is this functional? does this do what i want it to do and that's the that's the the it's us like, say the first 10% of testing you do on a, on a on a game the next part is probably 70% of testing and it kind of goes throughout all of the aspects of testing but it's the biggest and the absolute most important part which is is the game fun you are right. testing to see if the game is enjoyable Because people get so hung up and it's one of the things actually that is quite hard to makes it quite hard to find playtesters sometimes is people see the word playtesting and they either home in on the play part or the testing part. And it's like, no, you're doing the whole thing, right? Yeah. So that means you can't just approach playtesting as if you're just playing a normal game with your friends because that's not the point. You also can't approach playtesting from a purely mechanical. This is a test. I will bash numbers into a spreadsheet until numbers come out. Right. Most of what playtesting is 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 making sure that the game is fun. Because if the game's not, you a game can be wildly unbalanced. Right. Like some of the best games out there, uh, like board games particularly, but also I. I think you can say whatever you like about uh, 40k or fantasy. Balance is... It's fun. It's fun, right? Yeah. And balance is not the most... And this is going to annoy a lot of people. Balance is not the most important thing in any given game. The most important thing is if you enjoy the game. Balance testing is probably the last 10 to 20% of the testing you do. And balance testing is... So that balance testing is the thing that people think of when they think of the word playtesting. Right. But balance testing is a twi- like a minuscule part at the end of all of your testing. Once you've got the game working, once you know what all the mechanics go like, once you know how the overall game engine functions, and once you've got the game feeling fun, then you start worrying about balance. And People drastically overestimate how much of testing is balanced testing, basically. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it, it is what, it's what, nobody talks about the other aspects of it. That tells you right there, right? Yeah. The, the only discussion that's had by people outside of the glass is the, is the balancing aspect. Um, so let's talk about the, you know, is it fun? Um, how does that happen? So um, I, I, as I've talked to different designers, Bryce, one of the things that I've heard is a common thing is, Many of the designers I talked to have kind of their secret group, their handpicked playtesters that they really trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and they usually aren't trusted for the same reason. So there might be seven people. Right. And you trust Billy to to be able to figure this out and to give you good feedback here. Mm-hmm. And Sally and Jim, when they play the game, are going to give me strong feedback on this aspect of playtesting. Um, how do you how do you gauge fun um, as part as part of that? That's
0: uh, probably the hardest thing to do as a as a developer. You have to ideally you have to be exposing new people to the game. So ideally you would be bringing in different people at different stages of the playtest process. And so you might have your people that you trust very much at the start of the playtest process, and you're going look, this is guys, this is rough. Don't worry about balance. Just playtest it a bit. Tell me what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And then close to the end of playtesting, you'd be bringing in people who maybe don't playtest all that much. Yep. I- ideally, ideally, often what you want is people who've never playtested before. Ideally, people that don't play games all that much. Mm-hmm. And you want to just sit them down. And part of it is you want to show them the book and see if they can figure it out, which is one thing that is one of the most valuable things you can do if you're designing a game is when you're very close to the end, and you're read, almost ready to lock it. Bring in someone that's never seen anything to do with the game. Show them the rule book and ask them how to play the game. And yeah. if they can figure it out from the rule book, brilliant. You've, you're spot on. If they can't, then you need to fix the parts that they can't figure out. But you need to watch them play. And there's there's a spark, right? And it's very hard to describe, but there's a spark when people get a game. And often, often it's a very small thing. It's something like they'll go to move a piece and while their hand's in the air, they'll put it back down and they'll go, wait. And they'll think about it. And you're like, you're in, I've got you.
1: (laughs) 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 Hook set.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And really, it's just, it's just about getting, exposing the game to as many people as you can within the playtest process and asking them what they enjoy. And it's something that's incredibly important to test because as a developer, you the game loses all meaning as a game, um, yeah. particularly when you've been working on the thing for like five months and you're so bored. And you just like, because I got to a point where I was testing, um, and that actually leads to an interesting point because I got to a point with Dark Souls card game where um, I was testing that game mostly by myself at that point. And so I got to a point where, i was like drawing a card and i just knew the mathematically correct thing to do in almost every situation and so that actually led me to in the expansions make them harder because i thought the game was super easy and then right. when i put the expansions out to play testers the first time i put it out someone was like this is literally impossible we've died 40 times we can't beat this and i'm like oh i thought that was really easy right <laughs> <laughs> I need to adjust this down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um
1: yeah, your, your blinders are on at that point, I yeah, imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um and it's partially because you're you can very easily get too deep in the game and, and you're only seeing the the mathematical elements. Yeah. And there's also, frankly, an element of boredom. Like you tell like people think uh game development is some Like the most fun game and the most fun job in the world, and it's just playing games all day. And some days, yes, other days you are populating a spreadsheet of 280 cards, and other days you are making 150 edits to those 280 cards. And anyone who's worked on a project at work, and I imagine there's a lot of people out in the world, when you've been working on a project for four, five, six months, maybe a year in some cases. By the time it gets to the end of that project, you're done. Like, yeah. you just want to see the back of it. And so that's that point particularly is where it's so important to bring in other people and get them to playtest it. A, because you get different feedback. But also as a developer, that can actually be really rejuvenating. Because you, you've been so deep and you've had your head buried in this thing for so long that you've stopped seeing the game and you're just seeing numbers. And then you watch people play it and you go, oh, they're having this is a game. They're enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is this is fun.
1: Right. Yeah. Brilliant. And it gives you like new heart to go and work on the game again. I bet. I bet. Now, I'd be curious. Um, Let's say that you do do a play test, and this may be you might have a, an example of this. You do a play test, and you realize this is not as much fun as I thought it was, right? So uh, you you've gotten some feedback, you've watched a game or two with play testers, you decide fun is an issue. I need to make this more fun, or there's aspects that are not fun. How do you how do you set the hounds to figure out what needs to change to make it fun? Um, is it is it just so different on every game, or are there are there certain things that you look for or that can that can cause a game to be less fun than you'd want.
0: So it, it is different in every game is the, is the, the short answer, because there's a, a vast array of difference between something not being fun in a miniatures game and something not being fun in like a, a card game or a board game. Right. But generally speaking, there will be some mechanic or some aspect of the game that people aren't enjoying. And it can often just be something that feels, uh, the term we use is clunky. So something that feels like what you want from a mechanic is for it to be so smooth that it doesn't feel like a mechanic. And when a mechanic is clunky, it is pulling you out of your immersion in the game and forcing you to go, oh, I am playing a game right now and the game is making me do this thing. And so really it's about looking at the aspects people enjoy, looking at the aspects people don't enjoy and tweaking the aspects they enjoy so that they're more like the aspects they do enjoy and so that the aspects they don't enjoy fit more smoothly and integrate more smoothly into the into the primary aspects which are the parts that people are enjoying
1: yeah the more invisible the better in in some ways i would imagine right
0: yeah absolutely yeah
1: yeah and there's something
0: that we have to do which uh some people call killing your darlings or murdering your darlings which is, it's very easy to get attached to certain things and sometimes that thing, even if it's a good mechanic, it doesn't fit in this game and you have to take it out. Like, you just have yep. to be like, right, I love you, I'm so sorry and then you hold the shotgun, you know? Like... <laughs>
1: Well, and I've heard uh, from a few people that a lot of times those things are the things that may have been the genesis of the idea to begin with. Like the yeah. game was born from that idea. But as the game has changed over the process of designing it, you realize it doesn't belong here any, anymore, even though it was the it may have been the mother or the father of the idea itself, yeah. which has got to be a challenge. So, Bryce, imagine that um, someone approaches you and says – look, uh, I just started my own gaming company and we're going to do play testing for the first time. Um, do you have any advice, any common mistakes that you would give to that person? Um, what, what are things, lessons you've learned in the process or what you see as common mistakes that uh, maybe a rookie uh, game company might make?
0: So I think the the initial mistake is, the biggest mistake people would make is the one that I've already covered where they put way too much focus on balance testing um, to the exclusion of, uh anything else because ultimately you can have the most perfectly balanced game in the entire world if it's not fun no one's going to play it yep um and so that that's all honestly the single biggest point the second point would be get different people to look at your game throughout testing because there is a fatigue factor that your playtesters plus you're you're asking your playtesters generally to give their time for free or yep. maybe they get a copy of the game or whatever when it's done, and so it, if it's an expensive game, they're maybe effectively working for like two pound an hour or something, right. you know. Yeah. And because playtesting make or break a game, make or break a game, you ideally need to introduce. You need to spread the load, and you also need to introduce other people at different stages, because otherwise, if someone's with it from the start they risk doing the same thing that any developer can do and getting too deep in the game and not seeing the overall picture. Um, the final point, the final mistake is get... This is mostly for miniatures games, but I think it also applies to board games as well. But get players of different skill levels. Oh, good call. One of the most important things, right? Because... One thing, and I think there's a perfect example, which is Games Workshop with uh, 40k 8th edition versus 9th edition. So in 8th edition, they simplified the rule set drastically. They cut out a hell of a lot of stuff. They drastically simplified the cards. They made it way, way more streamlined to play. And people got mad and cried out for like a lot of the rules weren't fully thought out or, or like weren't as clear as they could have been. And going into ninth edition, from the rules sort of um, stuff we've seen so far, and the, the the rules that they've shown, the initial response has been very bad because they're releasing these like paragraphs of text that are very dense, and it's like the hell. Like I, there was one on there was one on terrain that I I do this professionally, and I got, <laughs> I got halfway down the paragraph, and my eyes just blurred. And I couldn't see anything and I was like, right, okay, I'm I'm not reading that. Yeah. And what I think that has been is that all of their playtesters are very competitive players, right? Who are so deep in 40k and live, breathe, and sleep 40k. And those playtesters, because they know exactly what that rule is meant to do, and they are so deep into this mindset of 40k competitive play, they've looked at that paragraph of text and gone, this is brilliant this is very very right. clear this is very prescriptive i love this this means there's absolutely no room for interpretation and yeah brilliant but 99 of the 40k market is not competitive tournament gamers yeah So you have to make the game for the people that play it yeah and so yeah i think in anything for a miniature game you have to have very um you have to have players of different skill levels because they would have picked up on that and if you're sending your competitive players something and they're going, right, this rule's really clear, brilliant, lock it, done. And you send it to your uh, lower skill players or your players that maybe don't play as regularly. And they look at it and they go, what the Christ is this? Yeah. How do I? How, is there a translation tablet for this? You yeah. Know what I mean, like. And so at that point, you would pick up on that as a developer and you would change the rule. And the competitive players would bet and why. Yep. But ultimately, it's not their, like, I was going to say it's not their game. What Like, the whole Warhammer for everyone. It's everyone's game. But ultimately, if you have a role that is benefiting 10% of your players and making making life more difficult for the other 90%, that's a bad role. Like, you have to just yep. make it simpler.
1: Yeah, and even if it's, I mean, I think one of the traps that I've seen, and I put in, I think it, it's one of the challenges Infinity Faces um, and it's what I like about the design of Marvel Crisis Protocol. So I see these, I see those two games as two very much of the extremes on this idea, mm-hmm. and that is the idea of trying to be a simulator, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Infinity, I mean, it, the rules are just, I mean, it's paragraphs and paragraphs, yeah. and, and and they're trying to really kind of simulate real life on a three by three board. Um, you know, from the terrain to the timing to the interrupt this and dodge that and roll around here. And then you go to the other extreme with Marvel Crisis Protocol and they're like look terrain is a size right that's a size 4 building and because it's size 4 this is what it does and there's no elevation in the game everything is top down so if i'm at the bottom of a building and you're three stories up but you're still 2 inches from me from a from a from the top down yeah. you can still punch me <laughs> and it, what's when i first saw that with Marvel Crisis Protocol in that direction i was like whoa like like what's going on here. And it really kind of put me off a little bit until I played like two games. Yeah. And after two games, I was like, this is so easy. Like I'm, I'm like, it took me 40 minutes to play this game because it's just like, yeah, this is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and this is easy. I don't have to pull the rule book out every time. I don't have to measure it 16 different times. And do I go a half an inch this way or half an inch that way? One last thing on play testing, Bryce. Um, now there's, there's obviously the artificial, constraint of the company that says look you need to stop play testing because we got to put the damn thing out yeah but but outside of that it, it, when do you feel like as a designer if it was completely up to you you'd be like okay we're done with this now now we need to release the game not put it in open beta i'm talking about actually release the game is there certain benchmarks that you have in your head uh that tell you that it's time to stop play testing and release it
0: given a choice i would still be testing every game i wish <laughs> i have ever yeah. made <laughs> this is one point where developers particularly need external deadlines because we te- we generally tend to be perfectionists i think it's fair to say like you want to get every single niggle you want to get every single little thing perfect yeah. and ultimately there comes a point where the game is probably 95% of what you've got in your head and you have to look at Well, so there's a timing cost thing where like is it worth me spending because let's say the 95% took me six months to get the last 5% is probably going to take another two months and is that worth it from a that's two months more wages and, and so on and playtesting budget but there's also a point where for that last 5% you're probably not making the game better you're just making it different because right. you like knowing when to step away is very very hard like it's something that is actually it's it's why external deadlines are super helpful because they force you to stop tinkering because otherwise yeah you could you could tinker forever with any game there you could constantly be changing a number here or there or Yep. Adding an ability, taking an ability off chain, tweaking this, changing that. And ultimately, yep. you, you're probably not really helping at that point. right? But certainly the t- the, the tendency and the, the, the temptation, I think is the better word, is always to do that as much as possible, where at some point you might actually, the game you had a month ago might actually have been better, but you've, mm-hmm. you've just tinkered your way into something different at this point.
1: Uh, what's the term I've heard? good. You over the bread, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh,
1: I can get that. So, guys, let's take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to learn a little bit um, about kind of behind the scenes about game design. Um, I want to get a sense of uh, what is something that game designers know that we don't? And what are some fallacies that uh, those of us that don't design games believe in that uh, is really not part, part of the reality? So we'll be right back. I'm here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, and we will see you there. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? Five dollars a month? Twenty dollars a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Hey, want to give a special shout out to some of our newest patrons? Special thanks to Mike Schmidt, Peter DeArmas, Eli... Casey Guidewell, Alexander Eby, The Gazebo Was, Islin, Joe Hatfield, William Majerum, Alan Connell, Sean Fisher, James Woodbread, Nick Cromarty, and Blair Thompson. Because of you guys, were able to put out content on a regular basis, and we appreciate it. Hi friend craig here is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models gadzooks gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection killer prices and great customer service don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money they even have free shipping to the u.s and canada if you spend hundred dollars or more Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. I, I chuckle a little bit, um, you know, being a part of the community all over the world for Malifo mostly, but um, with uh, some other things as well. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are really good at designing games but the, oddly they've never done it before but you ask them and they're experts on how to design games and what it takes to be a good designer and things like that um, i've been around the block enough to know that uh, you don't know anything until you've actually tried to do it so uh, bryce i've been trying to figure out kind of the best way um to to crack your head open and, and learn and pull the curtain uh, curtain aside so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you the question this way uh bright-eyed bushy-tailed kid straight out of school comes up to you and says hey bryce i know that you design games that's what i'm going to do for the rest of my life i just got hired by a company and i'm going to be designing my first game what are the two or three things you tell that uh young lady um to say look here's something you don't know now but this is something you're going to know a year from now what are what are the three things that people that don't design design games that, that they don't know and don't understand
0: uh, the first thing I would say to that person is, if you want to make any money, do something else.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Same thing about yeah. owning a game shop, right? <laughs> uh, the
0: second thing I tell them is, um, I sort of covered it slightly above, but um, don't don't worry about balance. Like, honest to God, balance balance is it's not not important, but. I think it's interesting because I started as a very competitive tournament gamer. Yeah. And so I was like, balance is the guiding light. If your game is balanced, they will come. And the longer I work in the industry, balance matters, but it's nowhere near the most important thing. So don't worry too much about it.
1: Can you think, Bryce, when you turned that corner? Is there, I'm sure it wasn't like overnight. I'm sure it was somewhat gradual, but can you can you think of maybe a landmark that made you realize, you know, what I came in thinking is not the reality and, you know, this is what I, this is, a, I need to re- rejigger the, the balance in my head. So it, it wasn't
0: so much a landmark point. It was more, um, we had, uh, for for a while, a couple of years, we had uh, DC, uh, David Carl, as our development manager, who has worked on, um, he worked on War Machine for a long time. And now is an independent sort of game designer. And he was one of the one of the wisest people I think I've ever met in the industry. And he was the sort of person that gave us gave us a talking to. And I, I say gave us a talking to, he just showed us really and was like taught us what how to be game developers in a lot of ways. Yeah. And um I, I think it was. In, I think it's so interesting looking back because I was talking to someone else I worked with recently about how we really disagreed with DC a lot four years ago, five years ago, and now I just everything. I'm like, yeah, he was right. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> the
1: worst. <laughs> Can you think of a specific thing that where, where you made that revelation? Something that you thought he was crazy before, but you realize he was right. Um. I think it was even like, conceptually. It doesn't have to be a specific. Conceptually, it was about um,
0: whenever we would get uh, like a new concept for a for a guild in guild ball. For a while, my head would immediately go to whenever I saw the very first concept. I would go, "Oh, that's broken. That's that can't exist in the game." And DC every time would be like, "That is completely irrelevant. We'll deal with that later. That's not the point right now." And it took several iterations for me yeah. to, to get it into my head. But particularly when you're looking at a first draft of something, you're not like, you have to turn the balance part of your brain off. And he would just, he would tell me every time, every time I brought it up, he was like, no, stop it, turn it off. And I'm like, right, okay, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm i in the room, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, that, that looks like a really fun mechanic. We can tweak the numbers later. You know what I mean? And you always, i guess one thing as well is you always try and look from a. um you try not to say no as much as possible because every time you say no you're limiting your own design space and you're making your job harder because then you end up boxing yourself into a little corner and going everything in this game has to be within this thing and that's not to say that you can't you need limits right you need limits but one of the most important things as a game developer is you have to know where the where the what the rules are so you can break them, right? Right. right. You can't you can't just go in willy nilly breaking rules all over the place. But if you know exactly the rules down to a T, then you know which ones you can flex. You know where where you can color outside the lines a little bit, as it were.
1: Yep. So I'd be curious, Bryce. Um, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that designing a game is part creativity and part process, right? Mm. There's a process aspect to it, um, but there's also a creative aspect to it. Um, how does that, how do, how do those relate in your mind? Is, do you think it's 50% creativity, 50% process, or is it 90% process? Um and 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 specifically being good at being a good designer, a crappy designer, I don't care what their uh, <laughs> balance is. So, but in your mind, how much of it is process? How much of it is creativity? So I
0: I I usually describe myself as a developer um, rather than designer because design is maybe the five or ten percent at the start of a process that is just coming up with an idea and writing down a very rough concept and, and some rough mechanics and going. This is, this is a concept. And then you can work on that and you can fiddle it out. But like fundamentally, that's at a stage where literally everything in the game is up for grabs. Nothing is solid. And then most of what I did was development, which is taking that initial rough concept and going, how do I turn this into an actual game that exists in a form that people can play? Um, so sometimes you get just like an A4 page of notes, and like a couple of card concepts and you're like right okay (laughs) so this card game has 300 cards so i guess I'll i'll do that now shall i um but i would say it's you need to be imaginative and you need to be inventive if you want to be a designer imagination and coming up with concepts is is by far more important if you want to be a developer process is more important although you do need to be inventive because you need to be able to expand on what's there and sometimes create entirely new concepts but you're usually working within a framework um and you can create new concepts and add things in and change things around and sometimes you will go back to the designer and go hey i actually had this idea and it's kind of different to what you wanted but i think it's better do you mind if we talk about it and then sometimes sometimes you can change one of the design concepts but so basically both are very important they are they are different skill sets and a lot of people in games that play games tend to conflate designer and developer um and i I think it's very understandable because it's one of those things where if you work in the industry it's a reasonably important distinction and if you don't work in the industry literally no one cares
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. I, to be, and I'll be honest with you, Bryce. I don't make the distinction nearly yeah. enough. Um, and even though there's a very similar distinction in the line of work that I do, so I should, I should, <clears throat> excuse me, I should have known better. So another thing I've always wondered about um, is where do you, where do you where does your thick shell come from? Where do you put on the armor? Um, the communities are very vocal. Um, they're very critical, and uh, when you have been working on something for three months, four months, four years, whatever, and you put it out there. And I don't care. I don't care if it's a game that if you press a button, it spits out gold. Someone's going to tell you <laughs> it's, it's not good. Um, have you, how do you handle that? How do you handle the br- brutal feedback um, and just the, the loud voices that can, that, that can come at you online? Um, so it's just some
0: like partially it's just something you have to learn because one of the most frustrating things like we talked a little we talked about playtesting for a while earlier and there's something that has happened that happens every time you release something which is you playtest the hell out of it you playtest it until your eyes are bleeding and you can no longer look at it and you're like right na- it's it's done it's going out and then on release day the first comment on the facebook post is someone going hey, so if this does this, does this mean this combos with this and I can do this? And you're going, yeah, yeah, it does. Great. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't... Yep, sure. Yeah, go for it. That's <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Yep. Um, and then you get people going, oh, how did you not see this in playtesting? And I'm like, I don't know. I had 30 people test that. No one pointed yep. it out. I don't know. Like, um, And so that's one of the most frustrating things is where... You can, like, no matter how much you test something, you can, it is on release day, it is exposed to a hundred times more people, a thousand times more people than you could have possibly tested with.
1: Yeah, all fresh eyes.
0: Yeah, all fresh eyes, none of whom are tired or working on other things. And so that's just something you have to learn to deal with, really. The The thick skin comes from getting online abuse, regularly for about two years (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) having it hurt your feelings for a lot of that and then gradually the the 120th nastiest nastiest, nasty comment is never as hurtful as the first or the tenth you know like over time over time particularly you tend to just group all of these sort of comments together in your head and you're like yeah fine just throw another one on the pile because it hurts a lot at first and then it's like with anything right anything where you're going to get your feelings hurt and it's one of the problems in any sort of creative industry and it's one of the most nerve-wracking things is that ultimately you are taking something that you have poured your time and effort and your brain power into and you're saying this is something i created and you put it out and people are going to hate it like yep some people will love it some people will hate it, right? That is an inevitability of, of working in a creative job. And it's just something, you, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet for it. There's no, I mean, if you're feeling um, vulnerable, um, or, or particularly if your mental health is suffering, I would rec- really recommend that if you have just put something out, turn off your phone, turn off Facebook, turn off Twitter, don't look at it, go for a walk and come back in about two or three days. Because mm-hmm. the, the initial hot takes are gonna be a lot angrier than the takes you're gonna see in about three or four days. Because there were models that came out that I've worked on, for instance, where the the initial reaction is someone going, This is the most broken thing I've ever seen. You guys are absolute more I mean, maybe not that harsh, but you know what I mean like right. you guys are idiots. How did this get through testing? Yeah. Then a week later, when people have actually tried it, they're going, Oh, actually this is fine. Sorry. <laughs>
1: jk (laughs) sorry i made fun of your mother (laughs) yeah sorry oh my bad um so as far as feedback goes bryce and people you know uh giving their opinions about the work that you've done is there a certain aspect of it that um you consider yourself extra more sensitive to than another so if someone comes up to you i'm getting the impression of someone you know says, you know, hey Bryce, this is broken. You're like, okay, you know, that's, I, I, I balance is something that I've, you know, that I, that is important, but not as important as you think it is. Um, but is there something else, or, or maybe you can think of a comment or, or a hot take or something that you went, that really kind of disappointed you um, and not hurt your feelings, but I think you understand what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. So, so the example of someone coming up and saying it's broken, like that is heartful more for Guild Ball than anything else because it was a competitive-focused game. Yep. Balance is... So I talked about it being maybe 10 or 20%, and Guild Ball balances maybe 30 to 35%. It's a bigger percentage. For something like Age of Sigmar, balance is in the 0.2% territory. Yep. Um, yep. So someone coming up and saying something is broken is... That sucks, but the worst thing is when someone comes up and says, like, this is trash. I never want to play with it. Or like, I never, I don't like. I'm just never. This is nothing to me. Actually, no. There, you're right. There's the the worst thing is if you don't elicit any strong response either way. And someone sees something you made, and they go eh, and <laughs> they never talk about it because in some respects, even if someone's even if someone hates something you've made. They're still spending a lot of time talking about that thing you made, right? Like yeah. that's that's kind of cool. But yeah. If if something comes out and it just immediately sinks without a trace and it doesn't even generate negative feedback, you've you've gone pretty pretty wildly off the rails somewhere um along the line. And that can be sometimes those are inter sometimes those are something mistakes that you've made, sometimes it's external pressures, like yeah. One of the hardest things is, like, I've talked about having a, a hard deadline is often very good for a developer. It can't be too hard a deadline, you know, yeah. because sometimes you get a deadline and you're like, oh, this game isn't going to be done. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to do my absolute best, but I, there's a limit to how much work I can physically do in the time I have to work
1: yep. on this. So if you look back over the last couple of years, Bryce, is there a particular comment, conversation uh forum post or something that uh that really really had a, a good impact on you that made you just feel feel good about what you do. Um can you think of, of something that really meant a lot to you that has been said in the past? I can't
0: really think of any specific no. I saw a lot of comments when the Shepherds Guild um came out for for the for Guild what was the last guild ever to be released and it was kind of my my baby. Um I really because i got to very quite rarely normally the, the the concepts for guilds would come down from the design team and we would develop them because i like i got to basically design the shepherd's guild so i got to do all the all the all the backstory for wow well, wow say all the backstory what backstory there is i got to work with the sculptors and help uh sort of finalize the look of the models i got to write the character bios and stuff and so seeing people, seeing people enjoying them was just really satisfying. But in, in another way, and this is related to game development, and it's not a topic we've touched on, but um, it's related to uh, representation in games. And one of probably the favorite comment I've ever seen was when there used to be a rule in Guild ball called Charmed. Which was where um, a model got a defensive benefit if a model of the opposite and inverted commas gender was attacking. So a a, a beautiful fe a beautiful female model would get defense bonus against men. And yeah. it was a rule that I never liked um, from from when I started playing because I thought it, it assumes that everyone's straight, and yeah. it's not really appropriate in a very crunchy football-based miniatures game and yep. so i wrote a post um, basically saying we're doing it in Aurora, we're taking this for the game, because it was only on like half a dozen models or something as well so i was like we're taking out the game because we are welcoming of every sort of gender and sexual identity we don't want to have rules in there that indicate that everyone's straight or it only makes sense like it, it doesn't really make any sense
1: there's no upside
0: yeah there's no upside <laughs> right like it was, yep. it was just it was actually proving to be a balance problem because, because some, <laughs> some models would be too hard to kill against men and too weak against women, and yep. you're like, this is this is actually a balance problem. In addition to the fact, that it's just not very representative of gender and sexual identity. And so, I made a post about this, and it was just it was fairly fairly tame. I didn't go too far into it, but I said like we're welcoming everyone in the community. We don't want to make anyone feel excluded, and. There are people of every sort of gender and and sexual identity represented in Guild Ball. And I got a couple of comments from um, people you wouldn't, like not white guys, (laughs) like um, a couple of trans people and um, I think more people from the LGBT community posted comments saying this is amazing. This makes me feel much more welcome in the community. And I was like, that's honestly like that for all I've worked on a bunch of games, that's those comments are the ones I'm like, this was a good decision. I am happy. Yep. This. You know?
1: That's, that's a, that's a great story, Bryce. Yeah. That's a, that's a very, very cool story. Um, I don't know, uh, recently I've been playing a lot of RPGs, which we already talked about. Um, uh, and I don't play D but I, you know, you have to keep track of D as a role player in the same way as a mini or you have to keep track of GW. Right. Um, and what you just talked about, uh, made me think about something that's recently happened, um, is a uh a young lady um woman and i'm not sure where she's from she's on twitter um she um uh does not have use of her legs she uses a wheelchair and kicking around some ideas she sat down and she designed a an item for d and d which is a battle wheelchair yeah um so that you and i don't know if you've seen this or yeah, not but yeah. um it has been fascinating to watch because I was there. I happened to just catch her initial like I'm going to think of doing this tweet all the way to where it is now. And this isn't a matter of I don't even think it's been a month.
0: I, I, um, I think it's been like two weeks. Like, yeah, I've, been, I've been, been following it as well. Yeah,
1: it's incredible. And w- what's incredible about it for me is first of all how awesome right like like she like for her to have the initiative and to put herself out there the way she has and to to make this thing and put a lot of time and love and energy into it um the reactions have been very fascinating yeah um because you've had a lot of the reactions very similar to what you talked about which is oh my goodness this is this is amazing and from, from abled body to non-abled body, you know, and, and disabled, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not good about the terminology, um, you know, it, it come, coming and saying, this is incredible. This is amazing. And then, of course, you've always got the percentage of people who are like, you're ruining my game yeah. uh, because <laughs> of this. But what's really neat is um, now a sculptor out there said, you know what, I love this idea. And he or she uh, gave like, created like four uh, CAD sculpts yeah. of a barbarian, a cleric, and a thief and stuff in a wheelchair, in her battle yeah. wheelchair. And uh, I just saw today uh, that there's uh, two different RPG companies that have uh, brought her on as a consultant nice. to uh to do it. And it's just, it's really yeah. neat. And, and completely kind of a right term, Bryce, but um, your little comment there made me think of that. And I can't imagine from your perspective, that must've been very powerful to realize that, there was a silence out there and a decision you made broke that silence.
0: Yeah, like it's just a really, it's a really nice feeling to feel like because the gaming industry has been very monolithic in terms of uh, it's been straight white guys for a very long time and still is to a very large extent. But we are starting to see those more diverse voices come through. And I think anything we can do to make people feel more comfortable in the hobby is only to the good, right? Like it's, we get more people to play with and more people feel comfortable and can come in and play games and yep. enjoy themselves. Um, and
1: if- 48 years I've been on this planet, Bryce, there's very few things I've learned. And one thing I've learned both personally and professionally is that the more diverse it is, the better it is. Yeah. And that that is just a truth. And it has been proven to me over and over and over again. Uh, The other thing I can tell you that I believe uh, firmly is when something makes you a little uncomfortable, you might be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when people, when you feel the pushback, like you talked about. Yeah. You're probably doing the right thing too. Um, when you feel that resistance, that means that you're doing something. Um, and that can be significant. Um, so, uh, let's go put on our tie-dye shirts and uh, go smoke some weed. How's that sound? (laughs) (laughs) A Nice little Kumbaya moment there. Um, Uh, So, Bryce, uh, uh, first of all, we got to plug this podcast. So talk to me about your podcast.
0: So my podcast is, as we mentioned at the start, it's called An Eye for Games. I I spell A-Y-E, which was my fiancé's idea for the name. Uh, And I was just like, yeah, that's brilliant. Like, that's phenomenal. (laughs) Um, And I basically talk about – I talk to people from sort of all over the gaming industry about different aspects of tabletop gaming so the first episode was with um two game developers i work or used to work with um about why do people play tabletop games and we go into how the desire for play is just a very fundamental animal thing because like every animal or certainly most of us are higher order animals plays right like Mm octopus dogs birds primates particularly and that is something very deep in human nature and I, I was sort of i did a bunch of research and do you know the the uh, the oldest ever board game is five and a half thousand years old uh is
1: it go is that, no, is that considered
0: it's one from go is i think second or third oldest gotcha okay um it was from ancient egypt yeah. um and it's i just think that's astonishing that like it's almost as soon as civilization happened. We were making board games, you know what I mean? I just think that's so interesting.
1: Bryce, I can tell you I've listened to uh, several episodes now, and uh, it's an it's an excellent podcast, and everybody uh, needs to check it out uh, on i for gaming a y e. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, man. um it was uh, it was nice to have um, your insight as well as your perspective on uh, the entire process from start to be, uh, start to finish. And um, for those of you that uh, stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools a compass stepper for those tight and important movements along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. owning a game shop right <laughs> hello did i freeze
0: hello yeah you froze yeah
1: okay am i back
0: uh yes you're a little bit laggy but you're back all
1: right well, let's give it a second to catch up You okay. tell me when it's clear is it better now yeah there we go yeah okay good back there. um all right so the first thing you tell them uh you uh wouldn't uh if you want to make any money in life don't do this what's the second thing you tell them uh, the second thing I tell them is um, I- oddly, we've covered a good bit of this too, Bryce. Um, so yeah, I expect I, this may not, this won't be the longest segment.
0: Yeah, I was um, just thinking I've kind of covered a lot of this in the, yep. the testing in the, in the previous section.
1: Yep. So what I'm thinking is let's let's focus on. Um, I'll throw it to you as uh, I've decided that I'm going to be a game designer. And I've come to you and I said, you know, I'm so excited. This is what I want to do. What are are the three things you're going to you would say to me that say, look, here's what you don't know yet. But you're going to know in about six months after doing this. (laughs) Let's start the conversation there and see where it goes. How's that sound? Sure. Good. All right. So. So here's another perfect example where you just ditch a break. Right. Because we ended up going right into blurring the lines.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
1: um which is perfect it was it was far more organic than i had planned it so it's good cool
0: yeah like i i mean i i was just chatting but hey
1: that's good we're good man we're, yeah. we're we've got a good rhythm going Um, very anxious to hear what your thoughts here so i'll bring us back right feeling yeah. uh uh out of it um and not on top of it so guys what we're gonna do is uh we're gonna can I continue what I've been doing with this insider uh, insight series? And it gives me a chance to talk to game designers and industry in. Ind- well, obviously you and I have trouble having a conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're struggling like oh, i really are not really are say,
1: <laughs> my first my first segment's usually like uh like 10 minutes and it was 30 minutes <laughs> it, makes, it makes me really happy no don't apologize it's I good did, stuff
0: i did sort of cannibalize slightly stuff that i meant to bring up later but it was kind of relevant for that so
1: that, mean, that's the whole, the whole thing i, I tried little, to do, do you want to pop a little cigarette just for not at all man not at all for- it um that's a um that's a big thing for me on this podcast is mm. it, it it um I, I want it to be conversational. Um mm-hmm. and it's part of part of uh why I struggle sending out a call sheet, but people like having that little bit of structure. Um but oh, I try to tell people just it's you know, we're, we're just gonna shoot the shit.
0: Yeah, I I would say like I I am stealing this call sheet and using it for my podcast because <laughs> I I've realized that I'm not, um, I don't structure it enough. Basically, mine, like it's, conversation was fine, but I need to work harder and actually creating a structure to drive conversation sometimes. Yes. Sometimes it gets a little bit stale and I have to jump in and say something. And it's much easier if I can prep that.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's what I found, Bryce. So I'm a year and a half, two years into this. um, Mm. And I completely underestimated the art of hosting. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I've learned a lot about it, and it, um, you know, there's, there's, a, it's, it's not as easy as people think it is. It's a real challenge because, um, you know, you, nobody wants to listen to me talk, right? <laughs> uh, so. I'm. I'm really. I consider an episode successful if I if I look at my editing board and I've got all the tracks up there, mm-hmm. and three fourths of them are not on my track. Mm-hmm. The three fourths of the sound waves are my guests. That I consider a success. Yeah. Um And but at the same time, you can't just let people talk about whatever the hell they want to yeah. talk about. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so when you're hosting, what I've learned to try to do is. I'm going to try to describe this and it may not connect with you, Bryce, or may connect with you a year from now when you're doing your podcast, but you have to sit there as the host, but you also have to like sit there as the audience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you have to listen to it as the audience. And when you start going, yeah, this is kind of like, where's this going? Yeah. Then you've got to come back in as the host and without being a, a jerk, you've got to kind of redirect things and move things along. Um, but then there's the other side of that, and I've listened to podcasts where this happens. Where the interesting part is not the part that's on the call sheet, right? Yeah. I mean, we had what three paragraphs on the call sheet? Yeah. But we talked about some really interesting stuff in that last segment, mm-hmm. and you've got to be you've got to be flexible enough as the host to going, yeah, this is good. This is not what I thought we were going to talk about and not what we're going to talk about right now. But what we're talking about right right now is engaging and it's good. It it takes some practice, man. It takes some practice, but it's fun. It's It's fun.
0: Oh, I should do that. Like, that's a really good idea. Um,
1: And it's it's good for your guests, too. It makes your guests feel like they're in good hands, that you know what you're doing. Um, It... um, I have long forgot because I was a guest on podcast long before I had my own. Mm. And I forgot how in, kind of anxiety mm-hmm. you, you'd get anxious as a guest and, you know, you don't want to sound like an asshole and yeah. um, you're being brought on as an expert in something. Otherwise you wouldn't be the guest. Yeah. Um, and just the call sheet just says, Hey, I got you. Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. Is, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, and I didn't do it with you, but I've got a whole speech that I give at the beginning where I just say, look, your job is to talk about whatever you want to talk about. My mm-hmm. job as the host is to put us back on track if we get off track, allow yeah. us to go if we're going to go. So don't worry about it. Don't edit yourself. And and I, and again, it's that I got you. Mm-hmm. We're good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started using the squad cast um, to record for two reasons. One, it's recording you locally on yours, recording me locally. And then okay. I mix the tracks and they're both local tracks. So it yeah. sounds like we're in the same room. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound like we're talking over Skype or discord mm. and two i think the video is huge
0: it's it's something i've realized it's really handy to see people because you can see like if they want to jump in and you can mm-hmm. sort end points more naturally like for sure i i think that's definitely is this free Squadcast cast or is that a- it's
1: it's not um but and i think i want to say it's it's less than it's like 30 ish u.s okay um and uh for me for me it's well worth it yeah uh, well well worth it um but there is a there is one to look at in the meantime if you're not ready to pony up that's much cheaper and it's not as good but it's the same concept and it's called Zencaster Z-E-N okay. uh Zencaster and it's good I stopped using it because they it wasn't as reliable as Squadcast, but it's like half the mm. price um and if you can't find it just let remind me and I'll ping it to you yeah um but highly recommend it. But the video is a big is a big deal, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I would agree. And also the fact that, like, you don't – like, if you're recording a Skype call or something, it's always much more – it's always way more difficult. It's hard to edit. Yeah. Um, and whereas this seems like it makes the recording much easier and makes the editing much easier, rather. No
1: question. Having, having both separate tracks are huge. And um, yeah. I don't know if you've gotten into um, – Uh, you know, manipulating the audio for clarity and stuff like that. But it's much, it's much easier to make me sound good and clear. And then I need to do different things to your voice, right. To make you sound, uh, you know, crisp. Um, And you can do that separately on the tracks and you just bring them together. And, you know, if I rip a fart while you're talking, I can just slide that out yeah Uh, on my track and it's not a big deal so yeah it also helps when they talk over each other yeah for sure when you're dealing with it separately all right let's actually have a podcast now (laughs) (laughs) um but in all seriousness no is if you ever like just want to shoot the shit about podcasting let me know because uh there's a lot of nice people that helped me when i got started and um uh it's nice just to have someone to go. Hey, Craig, what are you doing with this? Or I'm struggling with that. So never hesitate, man.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's I really appreciate yeah. the offer. Thanks.
1: My pleasure. I appreciate you coming on. All right, so let's. I'll bring us back.
0: Well, I suck. I lose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does. Um, completely forgotten the rest of that.
1: that's okay so what we're talking about is um so the you know the pre-measuring what it allows you is the the positioning the positioning matters everywhere but it's even more important for uh for free movement and i think Ah. you're you're heading towards hexes yeah yeah
0: so uh the final point of free movement and pre-measuring is that the downside is that you sometimes end up in a situation where you're
1: hey are you still here Look, uh, the podcast is over, and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.